0: Every river has a source, a point of origin from which it all begins. Sometimes it can be large, like a glacier or a lake, or sometimes it is formed from a tiny babbling spring. Other times, like in the case of the River Cercina in Italy, it begins on the slope of a mountain, formed over time from what starts as just a few drops of rain landing like tears onto rock and earth, sliding down the surface in gentle, silent rivulets. Gradually, the rivulets converge or collect in pools, spilling over finally as gravity takes hold. And now a stream is beginning to gush down the mountainside, ever increasing in size and intensity as more and more streams collide into one another, creating pathways in the landscape for later rains to follow, and as these pathways converge into one, it deepens and grows wider, until, from what began as only a few drops of rain, an entire river has emerged. For the dark, silty waters of the River Churchina, this process begins somewhere in the Collina Metallifera, or the Metalliferous Hills in western Tuscany where two waterways converge in the province of Grosseto to form the Cerchina. From there it meanders gently west through the pale Tuscan countryside, all the way to the small coastal town of Cerchina, the river's namesake in the province of Livorno, where its waters flow out into the Ligurian Sea. And it is from there, one quiet morning, sometime in the late 1940s, that a local sculptor makes his way toward the banks of the river to the east of the town, and begins his working day. In the distance, rolling Tuscan hills are steadily reddening under the rising sun, while birds cheep happily in the scrub, and a light breeze rustles the long grass, as the sculptor carefully picks his way toward the river's edge. Plunging his hands into the cool waters, He tears a thick chunk of clay from its bed and pulls it up above the surface. He plays with it in his hand, testing it for consistency, watching as the water streams off, dripping back into the river in thick, cloudy drops. Satisfied, the sculptor, a man named Amolcare Santini, set about collecting as much sodden clay as he could, shoveling it into a bucket before hauling it back to his studio. Later that day, back in his workshop, Santini begins the laborious process of purifying the clay, then dissolving it in water and filtering the resultant mixture numerous times through gauze. With all impurities removed, what remains is poured into a vat where it is left for weeks, as the clay steadily separates from the water Only then, when the time is right, is it ready to be used. At first Santini doesn't quite know how to begin, as he takes a large ball of the clay and tries to visualize the gentle folds and contours of the shape it must become, when suddenly he is struck by a sudden bout of inspiration. Taking the clay, he begins to roll it between his palms, feeling its damp plasticity as he teases it expertly into shape with his fingers. It is a strange feeling that has come over him. It's almost as if his hands are being guided by someone else. First, he constructs the torso before moving onto the arms and finally, what will be the figure's head begins to emerge On he continues, over the course of three days, until finally the piece is finished. As he sits back to admire his work, what stands before him is a thirty centimetre high bust of Mary, the Virgin Mother of Jesus. Her body is clothed in a tunic and robe, while over her subtly bowed head sits a shroud, the folds of each seeming almost to be in motion, so delicately have they been crafted. The figure's left hand grasps the opening of her tunic, holding it back, while her right rests on the striking image of her heart, which protrudes from her chest and has a finely carved flame shooting out the top of it. The strangely macabre image is known as the Immaculate Heart of Mary, an icon of the Catholic faith, with its prominently displayed heart serving as a symbol for her undying love for God as it pertains to the Catholic faith and for all humankind. Santini had been commissioned to make a version of it for a company located in nearby Bagni di Luca, who hoped to mass-produce it as a religious effigy for people to hang up in their homes It was the first of its kind to be made by the well-respected sculptor, whose work wouldn't ordinarily be affordable for most people. Little did anyone know that it would become just about the most famous depiction of the Immaculate Heart of Mary ever created. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard MacLean Smith. Once finished, Santini's sculpture was sent to a factory in Bagni di Lucca, where moulds were made of it before being promptly added to the production line. Over the next few years, hundreds of copies of Santini's model were churned out, cast from a simple mix of plaster before being painted and then mounted onto a 40 by 30 centimetre block of black opaline glass. In early 1952, Just one such model emerged from the production line, no different from any of the others that had come before it, with its sad forlorn eyes painted sky blue in colour to match its robe, while its prominent heart was given a striking scarlet hue. After being coated in varnish and left to dry, it, along with a number of others, was boxed up and shipped out to the ancient terracotta town of Siracusa on the east coast of Sicily. It was sometime in October 1952 that our Mary of the Immaculate Heart was removed from its box by shopkeeper Salvatore Floresta and placed alongside the 30 or so other Marys he'd ordered on a shelf at the back of his shop at number 28 Corsa Umberto. Salvatore looked at his latest items with quiet satisfaction as they stood silent and still on the shelf, then turned and headed back to the front of the shop and opened up for the day. It was roughly six months later, with most of the models sold, that a woman came into the shop looking for a gift to give a relative who was due to get married. Well, what better? than an effigy of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, suggested Salvatore, the shopkeeper, the ultimate symbol of undying love and faith. And so our Mary was finally plucked from the shelf, placed inside a paper bag and taken away. 20-year-olds Antonina and Angelo Ianuso didn't quite know what to make of the thing. Although they'd been polite and courteous when they received it at the wedding, in truth, neither were especially religious and had little interest in an effigy of Mary, not least of all, one that was so garish. Not having the heart to throw it out, however, they eventually decided to hang it above their bed, perhaps hoping it might in the very least bring them some good luck. The couple were married in late March 1953, and with only Angelo working, carving out a modest living as a labourer, the pair had moved into Angelo's brother's home, on Via degli Orti de San Giorgio, to live with Angelo's brother and his wife. It was only a week or so later, when Antonina fell pregnant. Perhaps the effigy of Mary had brought them good luck after all, they thought as they delighted in the news. It wasn't long, however, before Antonina noticed strange things occurring to her body. It started with a swelling in her hands and face, then her urine began to darken, going almost slate grey in colour. At first, she assumed it was a natural side effect of the pregnancy, but then the headaches started up. Steadily, they grew worse and worse, each time Antonina feeling that she might pass out from the pain, until one day she collapsed to the floor. Her husband could only watch on in horror as her face twisted into a hideous rictus and her body began to shake uncontrollably. Having eventually come round, Antonina was finally taken to see a doctor who gave her the terrifying news she'd developed toxemia, an old-fashioned term for what would be described today as preeclampsia, a condition which causes high blood pressure during pregnancy and can lead to serious complications if left untreated. Antonina, however, had entered the later stage known as eclampsia, and her prognosis was not clear, and despite the doctor's best efforts, her condition, only seemed to worsen. Steadily over time, if the terror of possibly losing her baby wasn't enough, Antonina began to go blind. It was 3am in the morning of Saturday, August 29th, when Angelo was woken by Antonina's body twitching and convulsing beside him. Realising she was having another seizure, he did his best to keep her from hurting herself, until the fitting finally abated and his wife came round again. But when she looked for his face, she saw only darkness. Her sight had now completely gone. As the couple wept together through the night, Antonina eventually found sleep, while Angelo had no choice but to head out for work. It was sometime around 8.30am that Antonina is said to have woken again. When she opened her eyes, she thought at first she was still dreaming. She could see everything. The bed, the walls, the sunlight flooding in through the windows. It was a miracle, she thought, as she touched her face pinching herself to know it was real. Then she looked up to the effigy hanging on the wall above the back of the bed and into the forlorn eyes of Mary when she noticed something strange. The effigy appeared to be crying. Grazia, Antonina's sister-in-law, was brought rushing to the room by Antonina's astonished cries Thinking first that Antonina was having another seizure, Grazia was astonished to find her standing at the head of the bed. "'Look,' she said to the bemused Grazia as she pointed to the statue. "'Do you see it? It's crying.' Grazia looked with startled pity at Antonina, thinking she was clearly hallucinating, but when she tried to help her into bed... Antonina pulled back. She was cured, she said, pointing to her eyes. She could see. Then Antonina turned back to the effigy on the wall. Grazia followed her concentrated gaze, screwing her face up in bewilderment as she tried to comprehend what she was looking at. The effigy was covered in small rivulets of water, that were dripping steadily onto the headboard of the bed below, and as far as Grazia could make out, the liquid was coming from Mary's eyes. Completely dumbfounded, Antonina and Grazia, along with Angelo's aunt, who was staying with them too, grabbed the effigy from the wall and ran immediately into the street as they showed it to their neighbours and anyone who was passing by, one by one, the plaque was taken and stared at in disbelief, the eyes dabbed and the material examined for any sign of water seepage, but nothing was found, and yet the tears continued to fall. With many neighbours aware of Antonina's recent health struggles, to see her then standing before them, positively glowing, it was clear to them all that a genuine miracle was taking place right in front of their eyes. Before long, talk of the weeping Madonna had extended far beyond the Ionuso home as words travelled quickly, first through the neighbourhood and then out into the wider town. And soon, a large crowd had formed outside Antonina and Angelo's home as people from all over Syracuse demanded to see the effigy for themselves. Having been alerted to the developing incident, the police promptly arrived to disperse the crowd, only to find themselves being swept up in the moment too, when the effigy was brought out to them, still crying apparent tears from its eyes. But as the crowd in the street continued to grow, the police had no choice but to confiscate the item, and take it back to the station for a closer look. By the time they'd arrived there, however, the crying had stopped. That night, with the crowd almost all but gone, the police returned to the Ianuso home, sorry to say that whatever it was that had taken place had now finished. Then they handed what was by then a completely dry statue back to Antonina and Angelo, With a few people from the earlier crowd choosing to remain outside the house despite the apparent miracle having come to an end, the Ionusos decided to leave the statue on a table outside should anyone else turn up hoping to see it. By the following morning, it was weeping again. On the second day, Sunday, August 30th, the Archbishop of Syracuse, Atore Baranzini, traveled to the Iannuso home, where he too claimed to witness the weeping. So stunned by what he'd seen, he rushed back immediately to his official residence and began organizing a scientific commission to have the object formally analyzed. All the while, word of the miracle in Syracuse continued to spread. As hundreds descended once more to Antonina and Angelo's home, the couple decided eventually to simply nail the effigy to their front door so all could see it and touch it if they so wished. Many even brought pieces of cloth and wads of cotton in an effort to harvest the tears to keep for themselves. Others came simply to pray like Pietro Sebastiano, who on seeing the liquid emerge from the statue's eyes, burst immediately into tears of his own. Feeling suddenly ashamed for crying so openly in public, he then turned round to find that everyone else there too was crying. It was early on Monday, September 1st, that Archbishop Baranzini's commission arrived at the Ianuso property, the group of seven men, comprised of four scientists and three trusted colleagues of Baroncini's, was led by Dr. Michel Casola. Casola was an avowed atheist and had been chosen by Baroncini for that precise reason. After being led through to the living room where the effigy was then being kept, Casola couldn't help but feel a little unnerved by the humble-looking object. This strange and passive thing, no different from many similar objects he'd seen hung up in people's homes over the years, quite clearly emitting some kind of inexplicable liquid. He brushed at its eyes with his thumb, then rubbed the wetness between his fingers. Then, taking a sterilised pipette from his bag, he proceeded to take a sample of it. Turning their attention to the object itself, The team carefully removed the bust from its plaque and examined it closely for any sign of a crack or evidence that it was simply leaking from inside, but they found nothing. Having got everything they needed, the team screwed the effigy back together, then handed it back to Antonina and Angelo and left. A short time later that morning, at roughly 11.40am, the crying ceased never to occur again. Madonna della Lacrime, or Our Lady of the Tears, as the peculiar object would come to be known, was said to have wept on fifty-eight separate occasions over a total of four days before it stopped. This apparent weeping. Was also filmed by a local cinematographer, the footage of which can be seen on YouTube. For some, with the crying having finished, the miracle was now over. For many others, however, it was only just beginning. On the afternoon of Saturday, September 5th, a young girl, called Enza Moncada, who'd suffered from the paralysis of her right arm since she was a baby, was said to have been brought from her home to kneel before the effigy in the hope that it might cure her. As she was led through the crowd, which had remained as large as ever, many began to pray for her. While the young Enza stood underneath the plaque, a piece of cotton was brought forward, still apparently damp from the idol's tears collected almost a week before, and applied to her right arm, As the crowd watched on, some began to chant, Long live Mary, long live Mary, when suddenly the young girl's arm began to twitch, drawing gasps from everyone around. And then it was rising, higher and higher into the air. Enza's mother burst into tears as her daughter stood before her, gleefully waving her once paralysed arm, high above her head it was four days later when dr michel cassola published his team's findings according to them incredibly the liquid taken from the effigy was found to be comprised of a watery solution of sodium chloride with traces of protein just like human secretions the liquid was then put through a series of chemical reactions the results of which were found to mirror almost identically the results of similar tests conducted with human tears. As a direct result of these startling revelations, priests all over Italy reported a huge surge in members of their congregation visiting their confession boxes, suddenly spurred on by the now seemingly verified miracle. Dr. Cassola's team also examined around 290 reports of inexplicable healing, such as that apparently experienced by the young girl Enza Moncada. Though most were dismissed, as many as 105 are said to have been considered of special interest to the church. With the release of the commission's findings, the seemingly miraculous effigy had forever been transformed from what was once a humble wedding gift to a deeply venerated icon of immense religious significance. As such, it had effectively ceased to be the private property of Antonina and Angelo Iannuso. After agreeing with the church to have it removed from their home, a vast crowd followed as it was taken from their door and led through the streets into nearby Piazza Euripide, where it was set to remain indefinitely. Watching on as it was installed at the edge of the square, Archbishop Baranzini addressed the crowd solemnly, remarking that the effigy's tears were not only indelible proof of God, but also a symbol of all the suffering that remained in the world. In December, At Sicily's annual Bishop's Conference, it was unanimously agreed that, on account of the findings of Baranzini's scientific commission, the miracle had been real. A few days later, on what for many is Christmas Day, with Antonina Iannuso having by then completely overcome her illness, she and Angelo welcomed their first child into the world, Mariano The couple would go on to have three more healthy children. The following year, the Vatican confirmed the findings of the Bishop's Conference, with Pope Pius XII also declaring the miracle to have been real. The Ionuso effigy remains the only article of its kind to be formally recognised by the Roman Catholic Church. And as its mythical status continued to grow over the years, it was eventually decided to build it a sanctuary of its own. The Basilica Santuario Madonna della Lacrime in Siracusa was formally opened by Pope John Paul II in November 1994, and you can visit the object to this day, where it is displayed along with a reliquary that is said to hold a vial of its tears, as well as a number of tear-soaked cloths. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad free episodes just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.